0: We're, we're continuing our, our Lenten, not our Lenten series, our, a, a, a series taking us through the book of Ephesians, and this series carries us all the way through Lent, and um, if, if you're new today or newer uh, to, this, to the church as we've been in this series, the letter of Ephesians is, uh, could be divided into two halves. The first half, the Apostle Paul really deals with our, our identity in Christ and, and tries to answer the question, who are we? once we become a follower of Jesus. And then the second half kind of deals with the implications of that. What what shall we do now that we are followers of Jesus? Now that we've been made new in our identity, what's our calling and and how do we lean into that? And if you remember, uh, we think theologically this is really important. The Apostle Paul started with identity because that's the first step to understand who we are in Jesus. Before we start thinking about what we're supposed to do, because you and I have this default setting where we like to try to do stuff for God to make ourselves acceptable to God. And that's not the gospel. In fact, that's a completely different religion. That's not even Christianity. We start with the understanding that Jesus makes us new, that the cross really happened, that a great exchange happened there. And by, uh, by grace and through faith, we receive the perfect righteousness of Christ for us, And we are made presentable to God by Jesus. And from there, we sort out how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning, how to become more and more like Jesus in this life, here and now. How to work with God and what what, uh, the Lord is doing in the world. That's the order and it's really important. And we'll see that order reiterated in the passage we read today. Now, when Paul does make this turn from... Uh, identity to calling, when he, when he moves to calling, he focuses very quickly on how we treat other people. Very interesting. The, the whole second half is about our posture toward other people. And it's basically about unity and purity. The first part, unity, you know, be humble, be be gentle, be patient. Take the posture of a servant toward others. Uh, be strong, but don't have this pressing need to always exercise your own rights. That's what being gentle means. Be patient, hang in with difficult people because that's what Jesus did with us, right? And as we do that, we become more like Jesus. And then and then, purity. And Jordan unpacked a few of those things last week, uh, specifically our speech and some other things. There was a big list of them in the passage we hit last week, the last part of chapter four. and And now in chapter five, the Apostle Paul really zeroes in on sexual purity. What that looks like for the follower of Jesus. So let's listen now to that passage, Ephesians 5, 1 through 20.
1: The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, hear God's word. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children... But rather, thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, for such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil." Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks, Jordan. So that, uh, you know, the piece about understanding our identity first and then thinking about our calling is reiterated in the first couple verses. Here they are again. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Uh, The the instruction is clear, follow God's example as is the posture we're to take as we do that. As dearly loved children. Dearly loved children. You know, it's identity then calling. It's always that way in Christianity. It's believing and then behaving. Uh, Christian ethics always emerge from Christian identity. This is the way God deals with people. He doesn't expect us to come to him clean. He meets us where we are and invites us to come to him. And that's good news because you know as well as I do that none of us can clean ourselves up before we come to God. this, This is the gospel that while we were still far off, enemies of God in fact, Christ died for us bring us back. You know, story after story in the New Testament. Jesus uh, in Luke 15, three stories of seeking uh, 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 for that which was lost and not giving up until it's found. This is God's heart for us, for you, me, for every single person in the world. Right? And this, this is really good news. It's always identity and then calling. It's always receiving the grace and then figuring out how to live in it and live it out. So now we're talking about the live it out part, not forgetting that we have already received it, right? Not allowing the voice of condemnation to sneak back in there and say, look how terrible you are, you're never gonna get this right. We say no to that voice, right? Because look, we love because he first loved us. We follow the way of love only because Jesus has loved us first. So, as a follower of Jesus, is your most basic concept of yourself a dearly loved child? Think about that. When have you seen that? When have you seen a child so utterly accepted and approved of and loved, maybe in some context you've seen. I remember one. Her name is Rachel Roush, daughter of good friends of mine in Des Moines, Iowa. A birthday party of Rachel's. We were all there. I could see it in her eyes. The, the candles were lit on the on the cake. The whole family singing to her. You could see her face. I'm dearly loved. I'm dearly loved. Friends, as a dearly loved child of God, walk in the way of love. Follow God's example. As we come to Jesus, uh, we are made new. Brand new, in fact. In Christ, you're a dearly loved child of God. We've been made brand new and we're called to live a brand new life. And last week, again, Jordan preached through the last half of chapter four. And, and again, Paul lists all sorts of uh, ways we can follow God's example there. And Paul zeroes in uh, this week on a very specific way we are to be brand new. We are to be brand new sexually. And lo- look at the text again. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather, thanksgiving. Not, not a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. And, and when he includes impurity or greed, he's not, he's not uh, you know, sliding off topic. These, these refer to sexual impurity and sexual greed. So in, in the Bible, when uh, scripture speaks of sex, when, when you combine the words immorality and impurity and kind of look at what they mean, that, that, those two words basically encapsulate all kind of sexual activity outside of marriage for which uh, sex is really intended biblically. And then the greed part, Paul kind of layers on top of this more basic understanding of our sexuality. And the greed part refers, it really is a covetousness It's a sexual covetousness, specifically coveting someone else's body for personal gratification, self-gratification. Now, talk about brand new. If you compare what Paul is saying here to the culture of the day to which he was writing, whoa, 180 degrees. It could not have been more different. Could not have been more different. Uh, There are many ways that the church, the early church was distinct from the culture around it. And the sexual piece is one of them. Uh, A recent book lists four distinctives of early Christianity. First, the early church was convincingly monotheistic now, the Jews were monotheistic, but the whole other Roman culture was all polytheistic, meaning they worshiped every god you could possibly identify. Remember the Apostle Paul in Athens in Acts uh, chapter 17? He, he's roaming around the city, and he finds even a, a, a little memorial to an unknown god. And when he addresses the, the great philosophical thinkers of the Areopagus, he says, I see you're religious in every way. You even have a temple to the unknown god. Wow! You worship everything, including the stuff you don't even know about. I mean, the, the culture was completely polytheistic and here comes the church with a, a message of one Lord, one God, one baptism, one faith. And a whole boatload of people joined them. What did they have that caused people to join them? The, the church was warmly welcoming, meaning the generations-old problem of tribalism was suddenly overcome. People of every tribe, nation, and tongue were coming together in the church and were warmly welcomed by the community. Now, just if you look at human history in general, this is socially extraordinary because tribalism is the greatest problem in the world. Division among people. But suddenly, you've got a whole large community of people laying aside self-interest to welcome everyone into their community. What caused that? What did they they have? The the church was convincingly monotheistic, warmly welcoming and radically pro-life. Christians went to the local trash dump to rescue babies who'd been thrown there to die of exposure. That was the early ancient world's version of abortion. The kid would be born and they'd just throw him in the trash dump. But the Christians wouldn't have it. They went to the dump and picked him up and raised him as their own. They were also categorically opposed to the Colosseum and all other forms of violence as sport. And there were many in the Roman world. Why? Because they valued human life in a brand new way because of what Jesus did had come and said and done. And finally, they were sexually revolutionary. Did you know that the early church led the single greatest sexual revolution in the history of the world? That that is not an exaggeration. The early church led that. Now, I'm not talking like Woodstock, 1960s, you know, No holds barred, do whatever you want sexually. It wasn't that kind of revolution. Nor was it a puritanical uh, uh, kind of power play of religious leaders to put a kind of a big spiritual thumb on people. It was a revolution to reframe human sexuality based on a renewed understanding of human beings because of Jesus. It it, it was an attempt to press Control Alt Delete and reboot the entire system. Like, we need, to, we need to shut the machine down and just bring the whole software up again because it was getting all twitchy and way out of order. Now, now if behavior follows belief in Christianity, if Christian ethics emerge from Christian identity, then what did Jesus bring that caused Christians to be so different sexually? And again, Christians weren't perfect in this. Just read 1 Corinthians, Right? but what we believe and that to which we aspire. How did that change so much? Now, the only ethic guiding sexuality in the ancient world was the avoidance of public shame. Actually, that was the basis of all ethics in the Roman world, the avoidance of public shame. If something would cause you public shame, you shouldn't do it. That was the ethical standard. Uh, there, there was no concern for the, the other or, you know, greater society as a whole. It was, if it was going to be bad for me publicly, I should not do it. It was basically the, just don't get caught kind of thing. And and sexual practices had, had literally gone off the rails. I mean, there uh, Greek goddesses, there was reg- regular... Uh, uh, sexual practices in worship, engaged in temples. The whole community would be invited to participate in this. It was about as off the rails as you can imagine. So what changed? Well, Jesus comes, right? And remember Jesus' Bible, the Bible that Jesus was reading is our Old Testament. That was his Bible. And he read that and he looked in there and he was like, look, every human being created in the image of God. Every single one. We can't just turn that off and on whenever we want. And, And then in the New Testament, there's this unpacking of a Trinitarian theology of our bodies, of our physical bodies. Did you know this? If you really dive deep on this, actually you don't have to dive deep, you just have to really read the scripture and pay attention. There's a very clear theology of our bodies. So hold out your arm and grab it like this, would you please? I would like everybody to really do this. Hold out your arm and grab grab your arm. You are holding a human body. I want you to really think about that. You did not create this. No one on this earth created this. No one on this earth can create this. What you're holding is more sophisticated than the best supercomputer in the world. It's more nuanced than the most advanced microchip in the world. You are more complex than anything in the world. Indeed, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, arms are getting tired now, so you can put your I mean, sometimes we've got to wake ourselves up again, right? I have a body. Me is this thing that is unbelievably complex that, that, that we don't even understand how it fully functions, right? Ask any of the doctors in our, in our midst. We're very thankful for modern medicine and it continues to be the practice of medicine. Right? we There's so much that we don't know. I mean, followers of Jesus have an incredible view of human beings created in the image of God. And, and if we're Christians, you know, if we're in Christ, it means that our bodies are in Christ. Not just our spirits or our minds or... I don't know how you imagine yourselves. Maybe you imagine that you have some kind of soul inside of you. By the way, that's a thoroughly Greek idea, not a biblical idea. The biblical concept of self is that it includes our bodies physically. Our real selves aren't just our spiritual selves outside of this thing. Don't believe that. It's a lie and it's not biblical. That's along the lines of kind of the Gnostic stream of thought from the ancient world which, by the way, is what Paul meant in the scripture that we read when he said, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's a, it's a direct shot across the bow about, toward all those Gnostic folks who are saying, hey, look, whatever you do in the body, it really doesn't matter. Really, it can't impact you spiritually. Material stuff is bad. The spiritual stuff is good. So really, whatever, whatever makes you happy, just go for it. It, it won't really, it's, it's no big deal. It's just the, the spirit that matters, and the physical can't impact that. That's just not true. All right, so every, every human being created in the image of God, we are in Christ bodily, in our bodies, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Oh, look at this, sorry, look at this verse. Uh, I skipped one there, didn't I, Ken? 1 Corinthians six fifteen. This is about our, our bodies being in Christ. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? never. So he's directly applying the idea that our body is in Christ to sexual ethics and how we ought to think about that. Uh, And then we're also indwelt by the Holy Spirit as as followers of Jesus. Do you not know that your bodies, again, not just your spirit or your heart or your mind, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom uh, you have received from God. You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your, your bodies. I mean, talk about revolutionary. If, if you think about a, a way to interpret the Bible as this, if, if you try to identify the redemptive movement being suggested by a text, as you understand the context into which it was written, right, so, so Paul was writing all this stuff about sex into a, a context that was off the rail sexually, and it couldn't be more opposite, right, right? So the redemptive direction the apostle is leading us is toward a whole new way of thinking about sexuality. I mean, completely revolutionary. I mean, this, this, uh, I mean Jesus changed our thinking about sex big time. Just, just big time. To the point where the apostle Paul says, look, we shouldn't even joke about this. Coarse joking, I mean, foolish talk, because all of this tends to, to denigrate something that, is incredibly powerful as we understand it in the context of the Bible. And all that should be replaced with thanksgiving instead. So there's, I mean, there's so much more in, in this verse. There's the, the part about, you know, the fear of judgment, that, that part. And I, I, I take that to mean that uh, th- this isn't for, uh, th- this doesn't mean that if we don't behave perfectly, God can suddenly go bloop or God will just go bloop and remove our salvation or something like that. Uh, and it's there. It certainly means if we're in a place of behaving however we want and thinking, well, God has to save me, God has to. That's a perilous place to be. And I think that's what the scripture intends us to feel. God doesn't have to do anything. Our salvation is secure and we should not presume upon grace, ever. So so Paul says Jesus is our example and and that because we know God loves us so dearly, we should walk in the way of love just as Jesus did, giving ourselves up for others because that's the way of love that Paul means here, right? The way of self-giving love. And I think the apostle is diving into sex here Because in its fallen form, in its most fallen form, sex is probably the best demonstration, fallen sexuality I mean now, the best demonstration of uh, completely self-serving gratification, which would be the opposite of self-giving love, which is the way of love that Paul is talking about. So what should we do? Because, you know, if we're we're having a real chat as a family, it's not news to anyone, at least I hope it's not news to anyone, that we are living in the midst right now of a global pandemic of internet pornography. Says one researcher, the widespread use of internet porn is one of the fastest growing, most global experiments ever unconsciously conducted meaning this has become such a pervasive problem that we don't even understand that we've pushed all in on an experiment that we have no idea as to where it will lead us as as societies and as a world that same researcher Gary Wilson went on to say this researchers don't know much about the effects of internet porn for several reasons in 2009 Ten years ago now, in 2009, when Simon Lajunesse tried to study porn's impact, he couldn't find any college males who weren't using it. So the first serious dilemma is that studies have no control groups. Now, this creates a huge blind spot. Imagine that all guys started smoking at age 10, and there were no groups that didn't. We would think that lung cancer is normal for all guys. I mean, the statistics that we know about, about pornography know, say that it's not just a problem for guys, it, it's a problem for people. Uh, nor is it just a problem for those who claim to be atheists or agnostics, right? It's very much a problem for Christians and people of all spiritual stripes, to be honest. This, this is a problem for people. So what do we do with this, this massive collision of realities that we're experiencing here? this huge thing that's happening in culture, in society, that nobody seemingly wants to really talk about, but it's real. I mean, this is the elephant in the room. And then you flip over to the the biblical teaching that says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Talk about about a, a huge avenue for the adversary to get in there with... Messages of condemnation and guilt and, you know, keep the church pressed down. I mean, this is just massive. So what should we do? Gladly, Paul tells us what we should do. It's right there in the passage. And it shows great wisdom and understanding for how people work. It's about how to reorient our lives around self-giving love rather than self-serving gain. Here's what he says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. I used to go to a, a big uh, leadership conference in Chicago every year, and it was, it was always the week before the Chicago Marathon. And one of, the, one of the teachers whom I really enjoyed at that time was a guy named John Ortberg. And he had a regular kind of shtick that he did every year to kind of give a shout out to the people who were gonna run the marathon at the end of the, the week. And he'd, uh, he'd kind of ask the whole group, big group, hey, how many people, you know, today, like today right now could go run a marathon? And of course the people who'd been training for the Chicago Marathon who were there would raise their hands. And there'd be, I don't know, whatever, 30 or 40 crazy people who actually raised their hands, <laughs> right? And then he'd ask another question. He'd say, okay, every, all of you who couldn't go run it right now, how many of you think that, you know, you could, you could go out on Sunday at the Chicago Marathon and you could run the marathon by trying really hard. Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe somebody somewhere could go out and run a marathon just if they hadn't trained, just go try really hard. But, you know, his point was clear. He's illustrating the difference between trying and training. And this is so applicable to the Christian life. You know, we, we will not live out our faith fully by trying harder. It'll be like going to try to run the marathon on Sunday with no training. So what does training look like spiritually? To to become stronger so as to run the race with perseverance. Right? It's right there on the screen. Be very careful then how you live. Uh, You know, Careful, wise, and understanding people add structure to their lives where they need help. They, uh, they open themselves to accountability and invite a few trusted people in uh, because they know they can't do it on their own. They know they've tried really hard and they, they just keep not making it, you know. So they, they invite other people in. Um, and and there, again, there, there are like five sermons in this passage, so there's a lot more to say. But the, the, the primary path to any lasting spiritual growth is what Paul says at the end: be filled with the Spirit. Not just in the area of our, our kind of how we manage our own sexuality and what we do with that. We've all been created male or female, and that's really good. There's not a thing bad about that. You know, in fact, the Scripture says that God created. Uh, human beings male and female he created them in God's image and he looked at them and said they are very good very good Um, so how, how how do we become more like Jesus in anything in this life this is the primary way be filled with the spirit you think well what does that mean really did that little passage there at the end means a whole lot actually and it's all packed into the verb there it's an imperative, it's a command uh, not uh, not a tentative proposal Christians are to do this second, the implied second person uh, pronoun is plural if we were southern it would read y'all be filled with the spirit it's not an individualistic thing Though we do this individually, the church is to do this together. Uh, third, it's in the passive voice. We do not fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. We are filled uh, with the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit. And finally, it's present tense, meaning it's, it's a present tense imperative. It's an ongoing action. We don't just do it once and call it good. We're called to do it now, today, and, you know, this afternoon after lunch, and later on today, and tomorrow, and the next day, and next month, and next year, till our very last moment on this earth. Be filled with the Spirit. And when we are filled with the Spirit, this happens. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What we do to occupy the spiritual territory we've already inherited is to pursue Jesus. Sidle up next to Jesus. If you want to be more like Jesus, spend more time with Jesus, If you want to live into that brand new life and, and become more like Jesus, be filled with the Spirit and go on being filled with the Spirit. And if this triggered anything in anyone with which, about which you would like to talk more, I would love, love, love to talk and promise you a safe place to do that. In Christ, we are made brand new and we are being made brand new. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me with you. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us Thank you for your patience with us for we know that your patience with us means that you're working on us and allowing us to listen and invite you in. We know that your patience with us means salvation. God, pour out your spirit on us. Help us to be filled again right now by your Holy Spirit that we might grow in you. In some small way, in all of the fruit of the Spirit you mention. Thank you, Jesus, that you have already made us clean. Help us as we follow you. We ask in your name. Amen.